from York to Tyrone, Jeffersonville to Bedford, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, ESG, Environmental, Social, and Government Score. It started out to help prepare companies for the future, but has been hijacked to enact a radical environmental agenda. State Representative Frank Ryan is here to explain. Should public employees be required to live within the municipality where they work? Frank Gamrat and Eric Montardi have the answer on this week's Allegheny Institute report. And it's deceptively called the Inflation Reduction Act. But on this week's commentary, Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania says, it's just more Washington taxing and spending. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to State Representative Frank Ryan in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. The Center Square reports that an update from the Independent Fiscal Office shows Pennsylvania general fund revenues have dipped by about $4 million compared to last year. The good news, though, is that adjusting for transfers, state funds actually increased by about $83 million from July of 2021. After the FBI conducted an unprecedented pre-dawn raid on the Mar-a-Lago residence of former President Donald Trump, agents swooped down on mid-state Congressman Scott Perry and confiscated his cell phone. Perry has been a key Trump ally and has been at odds with the Inquisition into the January 6th riots. Perry said the cell phone contains personal communications with members of his family and that had the Justice Department wanted information from the phone, all they had to do was ask. It is not clear why the department wants the cell phone or why it took such dramatic action. The summer political lull is about to end as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who may be a presidential candidate in 2024, will come to Pennsylvania this week to rally on behalf of Republican gubernatorial nominee Doug Mastriano. DeSantis's appearance is part of a Unite and Win campaign being organized by Turning Point Action. And after a three-month absence from the campaign trail following a stroke and heart problems, The Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate, John Fetterman, is now scheduled to make his first public appearance at a campaign rally in Erie. And in what may be a first in Penn's Woods, the Quarryville Police Department in Lancaster County swore in a mini-horse as its newest officer. Officer McGillicuddy is part of the department's community relations efforts and holds the title of community relations specialist. The mini horse even has its own uniform. Reportedly, it is a big hit with children. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. A company's ESG score can have a big impact on its financial progress, and reliance on the standards can negatively impact both public pension programs and your personal IRA. Unfortunately, the metric has been hijacked by those seeking to force radical environmental measures on some sectors of the economy. State Representative Frank Ryan represents the 101st Legislative District in Lebanon County. He serves as Vice Chairman of the Pennsylvania State Employees Pension Fund. Frank, welcome back to Lincoln Radio Journal. Frank, ESG, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue in the financial and investment communities What does ESG stand for? And give us the thumbnail on what this is. 
ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Related Scorecard for corporations. And candidly, they do it for governments, but they provide this type of score. And the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has recently weaponized it. Originally, the concept of ESG, Loman, was a relatively good concept. It it really got wind back in the 1970s, about the same time on the as the reform commissions did under the COSO Standards Committee on Sponsor and Organization, when all sorts of corporate failures were taking place. And, and candidly, different investment entities, the government wanted to find out why. So let me give you an example of what the original intent was of ESG, which was actually pretty solid. Back in the days of the 1970s, the railroad industry, the steel industry, the coal industry was running into all sorts of economic-related issues, and they found that that their model was not sustainable. The larger steel companies, Bethlehem Steel is an example, a number of steel companies and railroads went bankrupt because they weren't reinvesting in themselves. And so what this group ESG did is it's a standard that came out and said boards of directors to exercise their fiduciary responsibility should make sure that the model is sustainable. Well, the left took that, and since Biden has actually weaponized it, and the Securities Exchange Commission recently weaponized it even more by forcing corporate entities to to have different types of diversity, different types of issues related to uh, other types of mandates on corporate boards of directors that are problematic. Now, there's a similar group, but it's on the financial end, which stands for COSO, Committee on Sponsoring Organization. And that's about the system of internal controls. And that falls within the purview of most CPA firms. ESG is something that hasn't fallen within the purview of anybody. But where the government has weaponized it is they're starting to use this to advance a social agenda that they can't get done in in the case of, say, legislation. And I think probably the clearest example of that is Disney Corporation. When Disney Corporation had st- started to do what it most recently did that got into a, a tiff with the don't say gay bill, which doesn't say the word gay in it at all, but they took that information, they misrepresented it, the Disney board retaliated. The state of Florida then said, okay, well, if you're going to do that, here's what we're going to do. Since that happened, Disney has lost 50% of its value. So what's happened is I then started to take a look at all of this issue as a CPA and as the vice chair of the Public School Employee Retirement System Board. The Commonwealth and our annuitants on the pension system are suffering because of these irresponsible behaviors. And Disney really reinforced it because the very thing that they were saying that this Florida legislation did, it didn't do. So it, the board of directors, in my mind, of Disney violated their fiduciary responsibilities, and they were not acting as a prudent expert. So on June 30, 2022, myself and 23 other legislators filed a complaint with the Securities and Exchange Commission, alleging that these boards of directors, using under the misguided guise of ESG and how it's been hijacked, they were using that as a means of affecting public policy without understanding what it was doing. And it's become a major problem. 
What impact then, Frank, since you have entities like PCERS that have investments that are being impacted by this, what does that do to those investments and the income that PCERS receives and the benefits then that retirees receive? What happens is the unfortunate part of it, because we have a defined benefit pension plan, the retirees will see no difference in impact. The net impact of what Disney has done will fall on the taxpayer. And and that's one of the reasons I did it as a legislative member, because I said quite candidly, the taxpayer is now paying for the imprudent actions of the Disney board. I filed in our SEC complaint, we filed against Google or Alphabet, Disney and Twitter. So let me give you an example under fact checking. I went through the entire 10K, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission filing by all publicly traded companies. It's called a 10K, the letter K. And in it, they have risk factors and they describe their business. And nowhere in there does Google or Twitter say that they have a research arm that can, in fact, research what they're fact checking. So you'll have someone post something. It happened during the election of 2020. They posted something. Within seconds, Twitter and, and Google flagged it as, as being a, a fact check. Well, that's pretty decent if we have research analysts who can't do the same thing in a, in a period of time. And what really got me started on this issue about the SEC implications of this is that a board of directors has a fiduciary responsibility to be a prudent expert. That when they make these decisions, so if you fact check something, as Google has done, and Twitter has blocked people, as they blocked President, uh, former President Donald Trump, when they start doing that kind of thing, th- they have a right to do those things. But if they fact check it, they've now risen to a different level. And I contend that they violated their fiduciary responsibilities because they can't back up their fact checking. And in fact, they become nothing more than a political arm of, of a, either a liberal entity or whatever cause that they have to be supporting. And yet they're depending upon governmental regulations to protect their marketing, Rule 230 as an example, which prevents them from being sued. In Europe, they could be sued for this kind of thing and for slander or defamation, but in the United States, they can't. The original concept behind ESG, sustainability, to make sure your business model was sound, was logical. The Committee on Sponsored Organization, which deals with internal controls, is extraordinarily responsible, and they've kept that apolitical. But ESG has become a political, liberal, left-wing, philosophical approach at how to get, as an example, the Green New Deal through corporate entities, because they're banks now. Wells Fargo and other types of banks are talking about not funding any fossil fuel-type investment. They're trying to get all the public sector pension plans to divest of all fossil fuels. The ESG concepts have gotten too adversarial board members put on the Exxon board because they're using public sector pension plans as a means of attacking these boards. I contend that the wokeness of the corporate America has already been lost. And so I'm now using ESG as a weapon against them because I can guarantee you these organizations lack the system of internal controls to, in fact, back up what they've said. The same thing happened with Coca-Cola with the Georgia election laws when they were when Coca-Cola boycotted the state of Georgia and called for a boycott and the, the major league baseball game left the area, the all-star game went to Colorado 
And at the same time, the Georgia law was less restrictive than the Delaware and New York laws, and Coca-Cola didn't, and Major League Baseball didn't do anything about that. So these corporations can't claim that they want the protection from regulatory relief, be it Major League Baseball with the restraint of trade that they potentially have, and Disney and Twitter and Google, and then at the same time turn around and not have these systems of controls. My ultimate objective in all of this is I want corporations to realize they better stay in business to do what they do rather than venturing out into these other areas for which they have no experience, no capability, and no rational or reasonable reason to get involved. In addition to its impact on public pension funds, Frank, does this have an impact on folks who have uh, their money invested in 401k or other type of private retirement vehicles? It does. And in fact, if you've got a 401k, if you've got an IRA, if you've got a Roth IRA, and you have any mutual funds, it's likely you own these companies. Uh, if you take a look at Google and and Microsoft, Disney, and other corporations, the lion's share of the market values of most of these large cap common stock funds on the stock market are typically involved in those companies. So you've suffered losses because not only am I concerned about the public sector plans, but anyone who has investments in this through secondary investment vehicles, such as a mutual fund, would find themselves at a significant potential loss. Disney is probably the best example. We have been talking with State Representative Frank Ryan. He represents the 101st Legislative District, that in Lebanon County. And Frank, where can our listeners go if they would like to learn more about ESG, about its impact on their personal finances, state finances? Where can they go to learn more? RepFrankRyan.com, which is a legislative page. And then I would also encourage folks to look at the website COSO, COSO.org. State Representative Frank Ryan. Frank, thank you for being back with us. Loman, thank you again. It was great to talk with you today. Legal wrangling over the residency requirements for public employees continues. For an update, we turn now to Frank Gamrat and Eric Montardi for this Allegheny Institute report. Hello, welcome to the Allegheny Institute Report on the Lincoln Institute Radio Journal. I'm your host, Frank Gamrat, and with me today is Allegheny Institute Research Director Eric Montardi. You had written a policy brief recently on residency requirements for public sector employees, and I know this is a big deal for a lot of places, a lot of cities especially, as they try to get their public employees to to live within the confines of their, their cities. This came up in the city of Pittsburgh with their firefighters union. Can you give our listeners an overview? Review of your brief on residency requirements. Basically what happened was the city of Pittsburgh and the firefighters union had a dispute over their collective bargaining agreement in terms of residency requirements. What the city had always required and what was agreed to in collective bargaining was that if you were going to apply to be a firefighter, you had to be a city resident for a year prior to even applying. And then the understanding was that for over a century, according to the city, if you were employed as a firefighter, you had to live within the city limits. And in 2018, the city had brought a dispute over an employed firefighter accusing the firefighter of not living within the city limits. This went to a grievance procedure through collective bargaining, and then it went to arbitration. And basically the positions were the firefighters union said at the time, and currently is, is still the case, 
There's a collective bargaining agreement that was agreed to in 2019 and it expires in 2023. The firefighters union said the only language that is in there is that language that deals with applying to be a firefighter, that you have to be there in the city living there for a year before you apply, that there was no explicit language on living in the city if you're an employed firefighter. The city's position was there's no explicit language, but it's always been past practice and it's language in there basically incorporates this practice of if you were employed, you have to live within the city limits. So it went to arbitration. The arbitrator looked through the record, looked through court cases, and upheld the firefighter's position, said that there's nothing in there requiring residency, so the city needed to cease and desist any practice of a residency requirement at that point. Well, let's ask the big question here. What are the reasons for residency requirement? Why does the city insist on having one? I think a lot of the municipalities that do it, one, the argument that if tax dollars are paying the salaries of the public employees, that they should live there, they should be paying those taxes as well. There's the argument that if they live within the municipality's borders, they're more familiar with the with the community, the issues. And then also for public safety employees, they are there to quickly respond if there was an emergency, that they're not living somewhere far away. So this point here in the last two decades, residency requirements, the research we've looked at, take on two forms. Either you have the municipality saying that the employee has to live within the the municipal limits or the city limits, whether they get time to move in if they're hired, or in this case, they have to live there before they applied for the firefighters, or there's some kind of mileage or time limit where they say you can live within 10 air miles of the municipal building, or you have to live within a half of an hour's drive to the municipal building. Well, I guess the defense of the fire department is Pittsburgh's department's full-time paid that they're living at the station house when they're on anyway so there's a, a an emergency they're already there recently state supreme court looked at a a topic regarding police residency. What did the state Supreme Court say on that matter? The Supreme Court, again, was sort of the same process, that there was a change in the bargaining position between the police union and the city of Pittsburgh. The contract at the time was reopened. Arbitrator ruled that the city police would not have to live within the city limits. They had to be within a residency area of 25 air miles of the city county building in downtown. And then the city litigated it and went all the way up the state supreme court in 2017 Mm -hmm. and the supreme court was trying to decide what takes precedence is it a home rule municipality's charter which in this case the charter had been amended almost a decade ago uh, by a vote of the people who lived within the city saying they wanted all the employees police fire non-uniformed to live within the city or is it the statutes of general application in this case act 111 of 1968 which governs collective bargaining for police and firefighters the supreme court said was even though the city of pittsburgh had this language about requiring all its employees to live within the city it didn't supersede Act 111. Mm. So it upheld that arbitration decision. And that's sort of the direction this firefighter dispute was going. The city actually did file a lawsuit in Court of Common Pleas here in Allegheny County. But then after a couple of meetings with the firefighters union, they came up with what was called like a memorandum of understanding. Dropped the lawsuit, said, don't have to live in the city to be an applicant. But if you do, you'll get points on Mm. your application, preferential for hiring purposes. The 
the residency requirement for employed firefighters has now changed. So it's not in-city residency, but it is similar to the police requirement that they have to live within a 60-minute drive Mm -hmm. under normal conditions of the city-county building. So that is now, it's a residency requirement. It's broader. They can't live out of state. So even though this this 60-minute driving area would cover two neighboring states here in Pittsburgh, they must reside within the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And then the memo just becomes part of the collective bargaining agreement mm-hmm. going forward into next year when it's renegotiated or the next contract's negotiated. One of the things you did in the brief was you'd mentioned that, okay, the police have had this for a while, a little freedom to live where they'd like, again, given the air miles from the city county building. Did you notice in your research an exodus of policemen from the city of Pittsburgh? It's a 60-40 split at this five years later after that was approved. And again, we don't know specifically if it's police who lived within the city and then moved out and are still employed or if it were people who never lived in the city, took the job after somebody retired. Looking at what the city provided in terms of a paycheck or a payroll register with 978 employees, that about 60% of them are living outside of city limits currently. And that's a good point. We don't know who already was outside the city and applied for a job with the city itself, because as we all know, it's getting harder and harder to get police officers to work in, in any municipality or city, let alone a larger city like Pittsburgh. You know, brings up the obvious question why why don't they want to live in the city you know what can the city do to encourage the public uh, sector employees like police officers and firefighters to live in the city i think it's doing the things that all taxpayers are looking for Mm -hmm. you're trying to manage the city services to a point where its core functions which of course public safety is going to be one of those core functions but the things that are non-core looking how they can provide them is it privatizing them is it outsourcing is it contracting with another government to provide them so that the spending comes down, the taxes can be reduced, and then also encouraging the school district to improve upon its practices. I mean, Pittsburgh Public Schools, very expensive, low-performing school district, has been for a long time. It could be the police officers who have families and or you know, have school-aged children possibly said, we're looking for other school districts where there's a better performing, lower tax school. By and large, when you look at most of southwestern Pennsylvania, if you're a city of Pittsburgh resident, you're paying a 3% combined earned income tax as a resident, no place in the in the five counties at least approaches even 2% mm-hmm. combined for a resident. So that's something, again, is a consideration. And those are the things that the city should be looking at because the firefighters and the police and possibly at some point these other bargaining units, if they win that right to reside where they want to, if it's going to be a broader requirement of mm-hmm. uh, where they could live, then they have the choice. Stay in Pittsburgh, live outside Pittsburgh. Wow, that's interesting stuff. And again, applies to cities all across the Commonwealth, not just here in Pittsburgh. I'd like to thank my colleague, Eric, for joining me today. If you'd like more information on this or any of our other topics, I would invite you to visit our website at AlleghenyInstitute.org. The latest tax and spend proposal working its way through Congress is deceptively entitled the Inflation Reduction Act. But on this Lincoln Radio Journal commentary... Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania says it has nothing to do with inflation. The week of July 25th, the United States Senate Democrats unveiled their latest iteration of a tax and spend proposal called the Inflation Reduction Act. Without debate or examination lasting even a couple of weeks, the Senate passed the legislation and sent it to the House on Sunday, August 7th. 
passed along party lines with Vice President Harris breaking the tie to make the final vote just 51 to 50. Yet another hundred of billions was spent by Washington Democrats. And amazingly, the legislation includes new taxes, something even President Obama said he would not advise during a recession. Americans for Prosperity has cautioned against the title of the bill fooling Americans, as the legislation will do anything but reduce inflation. There's a series of false claims being peddled by both the president and congressional Democrats. First, President Biden claims that the Inflation Reduction Act will not raise taxes on Americans making less than $400,000. The truth is that an analysis by the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation confirms the proposal would raise taxes on Americans making less than $400,000. In 2023 alone, the Joint Committee on Taxation Analysis showed that taxpayers earning less than $200,000 would pay $16.7 billion more in taxes, and taxpayers earning less than $500,000 would see a $30.8 billion increase. Second, Senator Manchin claimed that the Inflation Reduction Act closes the loopholes and doesn't raise taxes. But the truth is that the corporate minimum tax included in the proposal will not close any, quote, loopholes. Congress should strive to avoid picking winners and losers through the tax code. Yet, the 15% minimum tax does not fix that problem. Instead, it would complicate our tax code, raise taxes on businesses and taxpayers, and make it more difficult for businesses to invest. The 15% corporate minimum tax raises taxes by $313 billion alone, and the proposal will raise $790 billion in brand new revenue. What Senator Manchin and President Biden haven't told Americans about the Inflation Reduction Act is that nearly 50% of the revenue generated from the 15% corporate minimum tax will be borne by manufacturers, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation. While Senator Manchin expressed concerns about closing loopholes, he was perfectly content to vote through billions of dollars in corporate subsidies in the CHIPS Act legislation and the Inflation Reduction Act. The entire push for this bill is misleading. The Inflation Reduction Act would not reduce inflation. According to the Penn-Wharton budget model, the impact of inflation is statistically indistinguishable from zero. The Inflation Reduction Act is another Washington tax and spend scam. As AFP Vice President of Government Affairs Akash Chugli said, This latest proposal confirms that Washington continues to be in denial about the policies that got us to this point and explains why nearly 90% of Americans think we're headed in the wrong direction. Well, Congress should reject proposals that raise taxes on Americans and that fail to fight inflation. We urge you to take immediate action by visiting action.com 
www.americansforprosperity.org. I'm Ashley Klingen-Smith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania. Find us on Facebook by searching at P-A-A-F-P and on Twitter by searching at AFP Pennsylvania. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WEDOAM in White Oak, WFRJFM in Winbur, along with WEJSAM in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations. They include the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.